Awesome. So do you want to start by introducing yourself briefly and then we can go into it? <laughs> sure. I'm uh, Justin Podior. I'm a professor at York University um, in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change in Toronto. Um, and I run a podcast called the Anti-Empire Project. Um, and right now we're in the middle of a series on the scramble for Africa. Uh, and we're, we're, we just about rounded up the British role. We're working on the French and then we're going to do the smaller players, Germany, uh, and then Portugal, uh, Italy, Spain. And, uh, and then we're on to, we're going to go on to World War. We have a kind of a history arc where we're going from 1492 to maybe the end of World War II, maybe a little bit of decolonization. Uh, and then there's also contemporary events. So I've had interviews with people like uh, Scott Ritter on, the, on Ukraine and Gabriel Rockhill, who's got some interesting, really interesting stuff about like the cultural Cold War and the CIA and the Academy. And yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in this information uh, space, <laughs> just like you guys, um, but also tr trying, I'm also interested in like real education. So it's not, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely like all for alternative media efforts and, and I've been doing that forever, but um, I think during the pandemic in particular, uh, I thought we could also use this medium to think more like about syllabus and curriculum and like, you know, you guys are called the cadre journal. So like what, what it is that somebody should know, like what is a minimal kind of minimalist like program that everybody should know if they're trying to take some kind of political action in the world. So that that's kind of my approach. I mean, I, you know, I take a historical approach. I'm not a PhD in history or anything. I, I did an undergrad double major. Uh, one of my majors was history. The other was physics. Um, and I did pursue more of the science side of things for the past 20 years or so. Um, but I've also been a journalist and and so I kind of got back into history and historical studies uh, over, I don't know, maybe like the past 10 years. And so that I wrote books. So I've got a book uh, about um, my first kind of political book was about Haiti. And that was like in 2004, the elected government of Haiti was overthrown, the Aristide government. And it was stunning to me because of the way the left wing like non-governmental organizations and like left media kind of embraced the overthrow of this elected leader by the US. And I was just like, what happened here? And so I spent the next few years just trying to figure out what was going on and ended up writing a book about that. And then uh, another, I followed that up with, um, I've written a, another book on, I co-authored, my most recent book is co-authored with Joe Emmersberger, who's another kind of media person uh, about Venezuela. And it's a similar kind of idea. It's like there's a whole operation unfolding to overthrow the government of Venezuela and has been for 20 years. And we try to relate the physical and media aspects of that operation. And then to go a little bit deeper uh, into history, I wrote uh, the book before that was a book called America's Wars on Democracy in Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that also was motivated by trying to understand, you know, I was an anti-war activist uh, in the early 2000s. And when the Iraq war 
of 2003 started, there were people who were saying, people from Africa who were saying like, you know, why doesn't anybody care about the fact that millions of people have been killed in the Congo? And I was like, wait, what? Millions of people have been killed in the Congo and nobody said anything about this? And so I tried to started to try to figure that out. And I went there a couple of times um, and it took a really long time, a really difficult intellectual effort, I have to say, in understanding this because the people that do write about it lie. Uh, I don't know how else to put it, but like mainstream uh, writing about it, journalistic and scholarly is of a really, really deceptive kind of standard. And so I wrote this book um, where I kind of try to reconstruct the story of what happened from post-independence to the end of the most recent war, like basically from 1960 to 2006-ish, and also attack essentially all the scholarship on the topic from that, um, in that period. So it was a pretty tall order and, um, you know, it's an academic book, so nobody's ever read it. <laughs> and uh, and it's a, probably for the best because like I said, I do kind of call everybody who's ever written about this an idiot. So, uh, you know, if they read it, they would probably be more upset than they are now not having read it. Um, so I guess that would summarize what I've been up to lately. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. And, uh, and, and also as like a, a student very interested in, in African politics, I remember the first couple of books that I ever really read about, like uh, a look on African history uh, after the revolutionary period. Um, it's the guy who wrote the book, uh, Gold, Diamonds, Blood and War, the one about Cecil Rhodes in South Africa. He then wrote another book. So he's one of these like Africanist guys, but yes. he's in the UK. He wrote another book about like um, Africa suffering, crying Africa, one of those like kind of oh, liberal God. titles. And mm. the sections on the Congo are very like all these crazy things happened. Millions of people die in the Congo wars. The U.S. is floating over there, totally detached and not involved yeah. at all. But so that's kind of what I'm curious about is I feel like that was a missing part of my, my scholarship that mm. I only later started finding out about, okay, the U.S. role in killing Patrice Lumumba, supporting Mobutu, starting this war. So let's kind of start there with, with Patrice Lumumba. One of the guys that I have only very recently found out about, like recently, like in the past couple of weeks, I found out about um, Frank Carlucci. And I did not know about this guy until very recently. Uh, and his role as the U.S. Um, uh, charge d'affaires to the Congo during that time. And his his role in in... I guess, like conveying the order of Eisenhower to uh, to kill Lumumba. So can you talk a little bit more about, like, I think most people know the context of who Patrice Lumumba was, what he was doing. Not as many people know about how he died and the role the U.S. played in that. So I guess we can yeah. kind of start there. See, I almost think it's the opposite. I think because of that really awful movie, and I'm just going to say it like that, Raoul Peck's uh, terrible movie, uh -huh. uh, Lumumba, 
which is just about his death. It's like some kind of Jesus story about the suffering and death of Lumumba as if he wasn't a political person, as if he had no program. You know, I I was really, really upset about that movie. But then the more you learn about Raoul Peck, the less of a surprise that is. Anyway, let's leave that alone. Mm -hmm. Um, The understanding Lumumba and what happened with Lumumba is uh, you kind of have to, what I had to do was understand that 1960 was not uh, 2010 or 2022 or whatever, whenever you started looking into it, okay? 1960, the United Nations was not um, every country in the world. The United Nations was still a club. Um, the African countries hadn't joined it yet, uh, you know, or, you know, they were just joining in the 60s. Um, lots of countries were still colonies. Uh, and the, con- you know, this was the period of decolonization. South Africa was gonna still be apartheid for 20, 30 more years. And like the West was oriented towards making sure that there was continuity of white supremacy from the colonization period, the scramble for Africa, you know, 60, 70, 80 years before, and um, and preserving the apartheid South Africa um, as an apartheid state and making sure that nobody ever threatened that. And South Africa was the wealthiest, most powerful um, and Western outpost there. So it's just like, it is not, what it is now. And so it, it's really hard to go back and think about that. But if you think about the, the life in which uh, Patrice Lumumba grew up. So he grew up in uh, complete white supremacy, complete color line. So, um, you know, cities are segregated. There are white sections for white Belgians. Um, the, the, if you wanna order wine, if you wanna do a whole range of like very normal things as a black person, as a black Congolese, you have to get a certificate of evolution. You have to be certified as what's called an évolué. And being certified as an évolué involves having a Belgian agent inspect your home, inspect your toilet, inspect all these aspects of your life and then they give you a certificate that you're an évolué and then you can take some incredibly low level job maybe as a clerk or whatever it is and that's um that's the best you could ever hope for and the worst you could ever hope for um is completely unfathomable because that's you know this is king leopold's congo this is this is africa where they uh, armed men would go and chop people's hands off and take trophy photos and and tell you know just slaughter entire villages and whip them in front of like have rituals of whipping people in the morning for nothing for no infraction at all they didn't do anything but they just whipped them just to show them just to show them um you know as part of the flag raising ceremony there's whipping with this shikot with the you know with a leather whip and when decolonization happens, um, the Belgian, one of the Belgian officers calls the Congolese troops together and gathers them together uh, and, and in front of a blackboard. And he says, he writes an equation on the board. He says, before independence equals after independence. 
And uh, so that was not what uh, the Congolese, including the Congolese that were in the military under Belgian command, uh, were expecting to hear. And that was the context of like the Congo mutiny and uh, the whole, like a whole rebellion. And you can see from that venue immediately, a lot of the tricks that imperialists still pull today. And again, like if you go back to the scramble for Africa, you see the same thing. It's like they personalize, they talk about a leader, they demonize that leader. In Congo, there were a couple, there was Msiri and there was Tipu Tip. They were talking slavers, you know, well, polygamists, uh, sex fiends, all that stuff, right? So they, so they do that. They start with that. They did that with Lumumba. There's all kinds of smears about that with, uh, as far as Lumumba goes. They take a unitary, you know, a, a nationalist unitary kind of um, state plan, and they, they try to break it up. Um, and they try to sponsor specific separatists. So it, when in the Congo, the Belgians basically moved into Katanga. So when their whole before independence, after independence didn't quite work out the way they thought, they focused uh, uh, their force, their quick reaction force on Katanga. And they immediately created a kind of colonizers, like it was a white people's thing. Um, and they created a party where they said, this is gonna be Katanga. If we can't have Congo, Katanga, we'll have Katanga. Katanga is where all the minerals were from anyway. So that was where all the interest was, um, you know, notably copper, but, and copper industry was the biggest industry that was, but Congo of course has other minerals too. Uh, it was the second, at, at the time of independence, it was actually the second biggest economy, the second most industrialized economy in Africa after South Africa. So you can imagine today it's the least, it's among the least industrialized. That was not an accident. That was not evolution. That was targeted for destruction. Um, so, they, so they sponsor separatists. And then Lumumba is in this position because he's been elected um, as the you know, post-independence leader. Uh, and, and there's negotiations for how the independence is supposed to go. And, but suddenly he has to deal with separatism. And of course, this is where the US and the UN um, and all these post-colonial institutions come to help you manage this because they're like, well, you know, we're, it's not, it's, this is the era of imperialism is over. You're not dealing with the British and French and Belgians anymore. This is a community of nations led by the US um, and the UN. And of course the UN is the Swedish uh, secretary general who's got business interests in Swedish conglomerates uh, that are invested in Africa and African minerals. Um, the US is eating all the British imperial, uh, happily eating and digesting all the British imperial possessions into their own empire um, after 1945. Um, you know, and they're instituting a kind different kind of colonialism. It's a neo-colonialism that they're setting up, but they're doing it in the name of uh, anti-imperialism. So they're saying, you know, this is imperialism is over. This is a different thing. Um, and a lot of African leaders, including Lumumba, kind of say, well, that's great because that's what we need. You know, we want to join this community of nations. That makes sense. So obviously the Belgians are here trying to break up Congo. Um, what can the United Nations do for me? And the United Nations calls, accuses Lumumba of genocide. 
uh, and the United States tr starts trying to assassinate him. Uh, they have him arrested. They have him put under house arrest. He escapes. He's so popular with Congolese that they can't properly use Congolese to hold him anywhere. Every time he talks to anybody, they take they start freeing him from prison, and and eventually he does escape. And so he escapes and people are like, he escaped and he travels. And, and this is part of painting him as this kind of bumbling idiot. He was absolutely not a bumbling idiot. Lumumba was a genius. He was not an idiot. He was a genius who did more with less than you can possibly imagine. He was typing up his own memos. He was writing his own speeches and he was gonna beat them all. <laughs> um, he was on his way to um, the province where he uh, was strongest um, to Eastern uh, like Ecuador uh, or Provence Oriental. And he was on his way there and that's where uh, they caught him and they, you know, they shipped him to Katanga and, and, and killed him and Belgians killed him. But it was like the amount, again, like the amount of effort and US intelligence and British intelligence and, and all of that that went into, and of course the French and um, the mercenaries and the Belgians that went into catching him and stopping him uh, was immense. It was immense and it speaks to an, an investment in uh, keeping Africa down, uh, the priority of keeping Africa down. It was the biggest, um, it was the biggest operation that the U.S. was doing in the 60s after Vietnam, of course. Uh, so this was extremely important to them to stop Lumumba. They did everything to stop Lumumba. And they're continuing to do everything to stop Lumumba, which is why when you read histories, except for Ludo de Witte, uh, any other history that you read almost, including by Congolese writers, portray Lumumba as some kind of bumbling idiot. Uh, you know, or sexual fiend or something. Like there's always some nonsense that they put in there. Uh, but what, um, what he was, was a nationalist leader that wanted Congo to be a democratic republic uh, with the same, you know, second, second only to South Africa industrial base led by black people in the middle of Africa in a country that's 2 million square kilometers and communicates with every other part of Africa um, during a period where South Africa was apartheid. So if you, if you just think about what that would have meant in 1960, how long do you think, do you think South African apartheid would have been able to last for 20, 30 more years if, that had, if Lumumba had won? Obviously not. Do you think that like the whole history of the world would have been different if Lumumba had won? Yeah, obviously it would have. So it's just, um, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to imagine both what the world would have looked like and also uh, what the world did look like from that perspective, like from where we're sitting today, because it's been 60, 70 years of the alternative timeline where they successfully killed Lumumba. But um, that's what, that's the only way to really understand what happened is to think about it in that whole context. Um, and that was why, that's also why it was so hard. It's not like, you know, Lumumba's not like 
okay, you know, they do coups and they do assassinations all the time. And yes, that's true. They did them before, they did them after. But there was, um, there was a lot of things that the imperialists were just figuring out how to do. Uh, and they figured out how to do them in the context of Congo. Um, so I think that would be my answer. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to go off from there. And I think also, it's it's fascinating. You mentioned uh, the UN Secretary General Dodd Kammerschwold as well. And like, there's been a lot of recent reporting, even on his death too, about mm -hmm. South Africa's- Yeah, they killed him too. <laughs> yeah. Which is crazy because like you mentioned, he's not he's not like a radical UN Secretary no. General or anything. Um, no, he's just exactly. like a, yeah. There's a really good book. I think her name is Watkins. Uh no, not Watkins. Williamson. Suzanne Williamson, I think uh -huh. is her name. And she wrote a book called Who Killed Hammerskjold. I feel like I have heard of this. There's also a yeah. documentary that, that came out kind of oh. recently about it. She did a book and it was uh it, it was maybe 2010s somewhere but it was mm -hmm. she did a really good job and she basically showed that even though he you know she didn't say even though he wasn't great but i would say even though he was yeah. he was pretty he was against lumumba he was against yeah. african independence he was a kind of an imperialist there's yeah. i don't think you can argue otherwise but he was not a uh, white supremacist enough right. for the belgian and for the british imperialists um and like the role that the British controller of the airport um, that he was flying into when when it was when his plane was basically shot down it wasn't shot down I think it was kind of buzzed by a yeah. French she figured out who the French pilot was of the plane wow yeah uh, she figured out what the plane was she figured out where the plane took off from and how they kind of buzzed his his plane and then it crashed and then the South uh, not the South African but the Zimbabwe Rhodesian white supremacists were right, kind of yeah. took over the investigation. Mm -hmm. um, and there's like a there's like a crazy picture. There's a photograph that's amazing of the Swedish investigators and the South African investigators uh -huh. or whatever the Rhodesian, whatever the white supremacists uh -huh. and the Swedes who, you know, I don't want to yeah. say about I don't well, their white supremacy is different anyway. Uh, uh, it's it's Scandinavian <laughs> white supremacy. Yeah. So, but they look completely depressed. You know, the uh -huh. there's two Swedish investigators that are like totally depressed, and then the two uh, Rhodesian guys are like standing there in their shorts <laughs> and their safari shorts, and they're smiling for the camera. That's and it's funny. like they're at a crash site. They're like at an mm -hmm. assassination site of like a world leader, and the yeah. it's, it's it's a quite a contrast. But anyway. Everybody yeah. knew at the time, again, everybody knew at the time and they made it into a big mystery. Um, right. Yeah, so. and, and I think the fascinating thing that I stumbled on that in reading more about like the kind of apartheid era uh, intelligence services and like that book does a great job of talking about mm -hmm. this like clandestine South African uh, Maritime Research Institute, which was this like oh. really, really, um, covert operations carrying out a lot of a lot of uh, other stuff across Africa um, during the apartheid years and and having a direct role in that operation but I'm, I'm also curious about just to come back to Lumumba um, I think a lot of people when they're taught about like the if they're getting kind of a crash course on like the U.S. empire for example they get taught about Eisenhower and the military industrial complex speech as him being like this radical 
woke president revealing to the world that the U.S. has a military industrial complex. And people kind of use that quote to talk about the U.S. empire in this in this strange way. But it was fascinating to me just how direct Eisenhower had a role in like mm -hmm. directly ordering the assassination to go forward. Um, yeah. I'm curious about like how much he saw it. So just to get, kind of talk about that and then also like how much he was perceiving it as like a cold war struggle. How close was Lumumba like actually taking the Congo to the Soviet Union? Um, <sighs> and like, yeah I'm, yeah, I'm curious about that aspect there's, of it. <laughs> there's this, uh, yeah, that's another problem of the literature from the 60s is that it's all this, I mean, again, familiar now, it's just like Russophobic, right? It's yeah. not like, I wouldn't even say it's like anti I mean, of course, everything is anti-communist, but it's just like, right. oh, the Russians, the Russians in Congo, you know, the right. Russians are coming to the Congo. Like it's, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't true. And there was someone who, there was a, a book that I cite that kind of does a pretty balanced job of talking about how the Russians, you know, were not, you know, they were, they obviously were helping every decolonial struggle because, you know, for whatever it was in their interest to do and, and to whatever extent that kind of international solidarity, communist solidarity existed in that time. So there was some of that, but like their investment in, in keeping the Congo uh, alive was like orders of magnitude less than the investment of the West in destroying the Congo. Right. They yeah. could never match that. They could never match that. Um, so they were so so he, you know, and again, it's it's also the same story uh, that happened throughout the seventies and eighties with Central American countries, uh, yeah. you know, with Cuba, with Nicaragua, where they go for they always go to the West first. They always go and say, look, you know, yeah. let's follow that. You have this international law thing. You have this United Nations stuff. Like this makes sense to us. Let's resolve this problem. Um, that we seem to be having that way. And then, of course, they get spit on and kicked out and, you know, accused of genocide and, and you know, accused of being sexual deviants and all the rest of it. And then they're like, oh, shit, okay, well, it looks like you're trying to slaughter us instead. Um, can we get help anywhere else? And then they go to the Russians. And then it's like, ah, you see, you were a Russian communist front all along, um, which you know, it's, it's perfect. It's just the perfect, uh, and that sequence of events is exactly how it went in, um, in Congo. You know, Lumumba asked uh, the, he asked the UN uh, to help him with the separatists. You know, he, he repeatedly went to negotiate with the separatists. He, he went to talk in Katanga many times um, and they, they, they wouldn't let his plane land because they were afraid that if he talked to them, he would convince them because that was the kind of uh, situation that happened every time Lumumba was put in front of people, <laughs> they, they listened. Um, and so they had to stop him from talking. That was like priority number one. Um, wait, there, there was another element to your question. Uh, the Eisenhower, yeah. Eisenhower, so yeah. I, there are cables. So there's the Congo cables by Madeleine Kalb, who, which was in the 60s. And that was like super Russophobic so, and like anti-communist. She's like, remember, you know, you'll read these. She, she has like either in her intro or her conclusion, she says something like, you know, uh, remember um, as you read this, that even though we're obviously doing some bad stuff here, the Russians were doing even worse, despite me not having any evidence or presenting any evidence of that here. Um, so the 
but there's also a bunch of cables that were declassified in 2010, uh, the foreign relations of the US. So all of that is in my book. Um, and yeah, I, what I'm amazed by is how much those leaders, you know, whose names, you know, like Avril Harriman was a big one. Um, like all those leaders from that time are talking about Congolese politics in a lot of detail. Like they know who Lumumba is, they know who the other politicians are. Um, you know, Lawrence Devlin, the CIA chief is, you know, sending really detailed notes about what, what's there, who's there and what he's doing um, to undermine Lumumba basically. Cause that was like everything they were doing was like, how do we undermine Lumumba? How do we defeat Lumumba? And they're lamenting the fact that there's nobody else uh, on their side uh, of that level, like with the visibility or the ability or the, or the, you know, charisma or, or program as uh, Lumumba had. And they were sort of like, this, this is too bad for us because, you know, it appears that anytime we have any kind of democratic or elector, electoral contest, Lumumba's going to win. So we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to kill him and sponsor some dictator. So it was Eisenhower. I mean, the, the Eisenhower thing, like Eisenhower was just as far as Africa goes, like just straightforward imperialist, right? Like a, a white supremacist imperialist trying to figure out how to maintain that system in Africa. Uh, Kennedy was a little different. And you can see in the, you can see in the, um, in the cables that there's a little bit of panic that they don't know what Kennedy is going to do. Like uh, the the U.S. establishment, the the Belgians, like everybody's like, what if what if Kennedy wins? And if Kennedy wins, he, okay, once he's won, they're sort of like, what if he, what if he just makes a deal with Lumumba? What if he's just cool with Lumumba? And if you look at the timing of when Lumumba was actually killed, it was just around when Kennedy got you know, would have been sitting down to sitting down to work. So they set their timeline to make sure Kennedy had no say in it. I mean, again, like, you know, yeah, I'm, not a, like, I'm not a Kennedy guy, but yeah. like there is it, a yeah, there is an it, element of that. Yeah, it's crazy. I was going to mention this, too. It's like January 1961, yeah. right as they're like about to swear him in that he dies. Yeah, yeah. so they somebody didn't want that hassle like somebody knew that uh you know the belgians knew the the and the u.s like devlin and the the various people that were on the ground they knew that they could there the possibility that kennedy might say no we're switching direction here and we're not we're not assassinating this guy like we're this is the leader of this thing and we'll make a deal with him we, we could they couldn't they didn't want to countenance that so yeah. Um, so then to kind of pick up on the point you mentioned, so they, they conduct this assassination and in the immediate aftermath, Eisenhower and, and Kennedy, I guess like now it's the Kennedy administration do sponsor um, uh, first Kasavubu and then Mobutu. But yeah. I want to talk more about the Simba rebellion and kind of the immediate aftermath mm. of, of Lumumba's death. And so like what's happening uh, with the Simba faction that, that comes to power, kind of the Lumumbist elements there. Yeah. This is the rebellion that I think people are a little bit familiar with Che Guevara's involvement um, in that in that side. So what 
leads to the Simba rebellion beginning in the immediate aftermath of Lumumba's death, what are the kind of different factions at play? Um, and I, like, just on one note with that, it's like, it really always fascinates me that Laurent Kabila was involved in, in the Simba rebellion. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure that that's a thread to pick up later on in the Congo, but yeah, we can start with that. Yeah, so it's, it's a super interesting time because Lumumba has been killed um, and they're on their way to installing they're you know, they don't know who to put in instead because obviously they have that problem that nobody can do the job uh, except Lumumba. Uh, they also have unleashed the separatist situation that they don't actually want. They don't, they don't care that Katanga, the U.S. doesn't want Katanga to be a separate country. They just wanted to um, undermine uh, a sovereign Congo. As long, if, if the Congo is not going to be sovereign, they don't need the separatism anymore. So they were trying to get that under control, which they eventually do. They, they take it back into Congo by force with the U.N. operation. So the same U.N. and U.S. that split it off, then forcibly bring it back. They have Moise Shombe eventually murdered. Um, he's actually uh, kidnapped off a plane or whatever and murdered, um, or I guess taken hostage when his plane lands, whatever. Um, there's mercenaries running around and they, um, so they install these people, uh, like you were saying, Kasavubu and then eventually Mobutu. And then they have the Katanga, separatists and they have the rebels in the east which is where Lumumba was trying to get that's his base um that's where the nationalists are actually the strongest and yeah that was it's another one of those things where it's like this was a big war it was a big war against the Lumumba um the Lumumba Lumumbists I guess you can call them and they were um they were the US again organizes this. So like the US cables are like, how do we organize this? We need to make sure that the troops that we have are white led. There's like a phrase at a minimum white led. Um, they call up the usual suspects. Uh, you know, a Belgian intelligence officer is the leader of the overall operation, Colonel Van de Waal. Um, lots of mercenaries, lots of ex-Nazis, lots of white supremacists from South Africa, all over the world. They create this mercenary international. Uh, and those these guys just slaughter their way across the East using the same, you know, pattern of that they did during the scramble for Africa, right? They radically outgunned um, the rebels, uh, you know, they just use these armored columns, just shooting machine guns in every direction, um, rape, murder, hundreds of thousands of Congolese were killed in this in this uh, suppression of this uh, insurgency. So it's a, it's like this minor incident, right? Though the Simba rebellion, yeah, crushed, whatever. That's what you hear about it. But it was like a huge war. Um, and towards the end of it, uh, yeah, Che Guevara had this idea, you know, the one, two, two, three, many Vietnams. He thought that the Congo was strategic for all the reasons that we mentioned. It's in the middle of um, Africa. It's, uh, you know, there's a struggle for independence and decolonization, and it's obviously an imperialist priority. Why? You know, for all these reasons that we mentioned. So he goes there, and his idea is to create a guerrilla warfare school um, that would be in Congo that would train people from all over Africa to, to liberate themselves. 
um, and Che Guevara's uh, method of, you know, school is, you know, the only way to school, learn how to fight is to fight. So that was the idea was like, here we have the, this war against imperialism taking place and we're gonna help them. We're gonna show them how to do things. We're gonna fight with them. We're gonna learn things ourselves. Um, and, and that was, uh, that was the, the war that they fought. And there's a, I have a chapter where I kind of read Che Guevara's diary and the diary of one of these mercenary commanders um, together and try to figure out like where they were operating and when they, you know, when these different forces encountered them each other on the battlefield. Che was a little bit depressed about it, um, you know, for a number of reasons. Like he, he, he got depressed, you know, I think for some legitimate reasons. He was very frustrated that at the class and caste system that he encountered where fighters thought they were above, you know, doing work and he th they thought they were above carrying their stuff. And like, there's this, one of the most hated traditions of colonialism in the Congo is the porters, like turning villagers into porters to carry your stuff across uh, the country where there's no great train railways or motorized transport. So they use porters, they force people to carry uh, stuff on their heads under the threat of violence, right? Or on their backs. Um, and the guerrilla fighters would do that. and and, you know, Che Guevara got really upset about that. And he was like, when we would admonish them, they would say, well, what do I look like? A car or a motor car? Or what do you, what do I look like? A Cuban? Like he, he, they kind of made fun of Cuba. They actually made fun of the Cubans for carrying their own stuff. And Che Guevara was like, we're going to lose this war because you guys are not willing to carry your own stuff. And, you know, he was always on the lookout for like, leaders um you know the kind of he's always looking for like qualities he always talks about qualities right and so he was like none of the leaders here have the right qualities to lead this kind of struggle and he includes kabila in that um and some of the others he's just like they want to live fancy lifestyles of like glamorous rebel leaders uh, co going back and forth from the front to the city um, doing business they don't want to be here carrying their own stuff, you know, teaching people to read and, and, and actually fighting. Um, and so he eventually kind of got frustrated and, and gave up. The funny thing is when you look at the South African side or like the mercenary side, they were terrified of the Cubans. So as frustrated as Che Guevara was, um, they, they were, giving the mercenaries a really hard time and the US a really hard time there, which they didn't really appreciate. Um, so I don't know who, I don't know who was right. I, I, I was sort of like, Chain, don't give up <laughs> when I was reading his diary. But, you know, I'm sure if I was there, I would have agreed with him uh, too. So uh, that's, you know, that that's, we can say a lot more about the rebellion. I mean, there was a lot of continuity too with um, pre-independence pre, um, rebellions, right? Like this is another thing about Africa that people don't appreciate. Like the scramble for Africa, the period of colonialism between the 1880s and, and the 1960s was continuous rebellion, continuous fighting back, continuous. And that's part of why the colonialists were so vicious, right? Because it was like, they were so vicious because they were always having to uh, fight. Uh, rebels who didn't, you know, and it was such a 
that was why it was so it was brutal and it was genocidal on the colonial side um you know and it was constant struggle until the africans won and it's like it's funny because you look at lumumba's speech right lumumba made a speech on independence day in front of the king and uh, the belgian king and there's a lot of like oh how could he insult the king that way and whatnot but he says some interesting things that like don't make sense if you only know the mainstream history, because he says like glory to our independence fighters, glory to the Congolese who fought for independence. And it's like, who's he talking about? Like there, they say that Congolese independence was negotiated. So what does he mean? But like, he wasn't talking, he wasn't making that up, right? There were, there were battles like brutal, vicious. There was a brutal, vicious struggle going on in the Congolese countryside for independence that started in the 1880s when the Belgians showed up and didn't stop until they left. So. Well, just to like make one small note and then to kind of follow up on that, one of the craziest things to me about like reading Che's experience uh, there and then to also kind of keep in the context is like, while he's there with like, a Cuban force helping train the Simba rebellion. There's also a CIA Cuban group on the other side of the war. Yeah. So yeah. there's like this the, the Cuban, Cuban civil war, an air force. Um, yeah. And they're like I, so I grew up um, kind of outside Fort Lauderdale uh, in South Florida, and our our local newspaper, the Miami Herald, has this article. And just remembering, like, and looking at it. The title is uh, Anniversary Recalls Congo Rescue by Miami Cubans. And it's about like commemorating that group of, of Cubans who went and fought against Che Guevara and rescued mm-hmm. the Congo. And just, I mean, these are, and they like call them CIA shadow warriors and stuff like that, all, the, all this crazy shit. So you have mm-hmm. the like Usanos fighting on the other side. Um, but it's really funny that that Che, like, as you're saying, is feeling so depressed and like not, mm-hmm. and he's really like, I remember reading in My African Dream, he, he does a really good job of analyzing like material conditions in the Congo, mm-hmm. but he is so cynical about it. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of missed opportunity there, I think. is even mm-hmm. more interesting too, like his analysis of Kabila is very fascinating <laughs> because he's so, he's so critical of like, uh, of this of this leading faction, but I think he is is also too, a little too cynical about like the average fighter who really yeah. is like a revolutionary. So can you talk a little bit more about how, so he leaves the Congo and pretty shortly thereafter, the Simba rebellion kind of falls apart. Um, Mobutu takes power and overthrows uh, Kasavubu with the US support. And then Mobutu reigns for another uh, like couple decades after that. So how does the U.S. play a role in elevating Mobutu to power after this, the Congo crisis concludes and the Congo is reunited and then like, keeps propping him up with U.S. aid and military support after that um, through all the crises that he experiences uh, after that in the Congo? And then we'll talk, I guess, and conclude with his story when it all falls apart um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, so when you look at the whole history of Africa from the 70s on, so they're putting it together where they put Shombe, who was like the separatist uh, leader, they put him in charge of the whole Congo for a little bit. 
um, and that's who uh, that's who the that's who the South African mercenaries work for. Um, and, sorry, could you just? Yeah, so Moise Shombe was the separatist. The U.S. put him in charge, um, and that's who the the mercenaries all end up working for for a bit. But um, again, Shombe is corrupt, uh, incompetent, all the rest of it. And anyway, Mobutu was waiting, <laughs> you know, had been waiting long enough. So they they liked him, right? The CIA liked Mobutu. Devlin had a special relationship with Mobutu going back to when um, when Lumumba was, was prime minister. So, uh, so they put him in. Um, they finally kind of give him the green light to get rid of Shombe, which he does. Uh, and then, yeah, he's there uh, and he's there, you know, <laughs> and he does this stuff, you know, there, I always say like he did some stuff, right? Like he renamed all the cities, you know, which I'm sure Lumumba was going to do, but he renamed all the cities. He renamed the country. He did, you know, he didn't, it's no more, no more Stanleyville and Leopoldville, you know, that no, none of that stuff. So he did that. Um, as for the rest, <laughs> as for every other thing that he did, it was terrible. Um, so this is under Mobutu that Africa goes, I mean, Congo goes from the second most powerful industrial economy um, in Africa to whatever it is, you know, now, 158th or whatever on the, on the human development index. And uh, it's, it, you know, obviously wars are bad, right? Uh, wars are bad for, for that kind of thing. And the, and the war um, that, Con the wars that Congo uh, had to undergo as part of its independence struggle from 1960 to whatever, 65, 68, um, were brutal. Uh, but it was, it was Mobutu running uh, the country into the ground under US tutelage that actually led to the current kind of infrastructural and economic situation. So yeah, I mean, it's uh, the one, the, the think of like the third world uh, cycle um, from the 60s and 70s. It's like the World Bank shows up, gives you big loans to do commodity production, gets you off the food sovereignty track, gets you off the uh, in, import substitution industrialization track, and sends you on this monocultural export one commodity uh don't worry the price is going to remain high forever uh borrow tons of money from us because it's the only game in town and um and everything will be fine and then of course crash the price of the commodity uh seize all the country's assets um continue to grow the debt which can never ever be repaid and then you know the imf actually took direct control of uh, the the Zairean Ministry of Finance in 1975, and they were doing the same thing everywhere else. You know, Rwanda, Burundi. So that's the same pattern, uh, and ultimately it ends the same way with like complete destitution uh, and 20, 25 years by that point of denied development opportunity. Right, and Congo was again like Congo was the most important potential big, you know, there was hydro potential for power. They could have had the stuff they could have had. It's just, I'm, I, I'd get like, I'm crying, I'm going to cry if I think about it, you know, but um, they, 
they they turned that potential, they made sure that it was the weakest, most depressed, most crushed economy by that exact logic. So by by the time of the late 80s, um, the formal sector is basically completely destroyed and it's all like a smuggling economy. Uh, you know, they're smuggling diamonds out. They're hardly making any legitimate hard currency. They've just completely crashed it and it's completely illegal. And so, you know, it's been so long to that people are getting to, you know, getting move, trying to move towards uh, getting rid of Mobushu. And so there's various movements um, for what they want, like multi-partyism. In Africa, it took this form of multi-partyism, right? Like uh, lots of places in the early 90s were like, we're, we're tired of these dictators, mostly Western-sponsored dictators, uh, and we want a multi-party electoral systems. And of course, that's great for what the U.S. was uh, up to at the time, which was moving into this kind of polyarchy kind of system of um, of of creating intervening in in democratic uh, processes using the National Endowment for Democracy and the International Republican Institute and all these other kinds of clever media and training activists and all that stuff. So they, they got in there with all that, but um, it didn't, it wasn't, they didn't feel confident that that was gonna do the job, which is why they started um, instead this huge war uh, on Central Africa to kind of, I, I think of it, and lots of lots of Africans uh, think of that as like their way of preempting the multi-partyist kind of moment at the beginning of the '90s, with by plunging Africa back into another several decades of war, which is what like the second part of my book is about. You know, the wars in DRC, Rwanda, um, Burundi too, which is like another part of. Africa that nobody ever talks about, um, but it's very related to what happened in Rwanda and uh, DRC um, at the at the time. So they, they kind of plunged Central Africa back into decades of war, and uh, that was like a second moment from which, you know, uh, to to prevent any kind of recovery from the first uh, '60s round of warfare. Yeah, and just to go more into, so now like shifting to the late 90s and early 2000s, the, the two, like people call them Africa's world wars. Yeah. Um, I guess like from my reading of a lot of it, um, it, a lot of it starts with the, it starts with Rwanda um, yeah. and like that's kind of a critical place. So maybe like a, a brief kind of explanation. I think a lot of people are familiar with like the French role in the Rwandan genocide, like a little bit more people are learning yeah. about that. Um, they, have the wrong, that they have the wrong idea about that. I right. So I, I'm, think the, I'm curious, I think the yeah. whole discussion of the French role in the Rwanda genocide is basically American propaganda. Interesting. And I'll, I'll tell you why. So okay. if you're thinking about, so if you go back, this is like one of these weird things, but if you go back and read anything about Rwanda history, try to read something that was written before 1993. First of all, it'll be almost impossible to find. And when you find René Lamarchand or like one of these two or three other people, you'll see that there's like, you, you can't really make the case that Rwanda was somehow more genocidal than any other country prior to the invasion of 
Rwanda by Ugandan troops, basically this Ugandan RPF um, in 1990, you really can't, there's no way to argue that it, like more genocidal than what, that, than Mobutu's Congo, more genocidal than what's going on in Uganda in the Bush war, more genocidal than what's going on, um, you know, than what South Africa is doing in, in, in um, Namibia and Angola. It's no, it, there's no way more genocidal than, um, yeah, than that war, I guess I mentioned Idi Amin, whatever. Like, there's no way, there's no way you can make that claim. So what the, the Rwandan genocide uh, is part of the dynamic that was set off in this American sponsored decade, multi-decade war. Um, and it starts uh, in the 80s in Uganda when the U.S. and Britain sponsor you know, Museveni's movement to kind of end that war. And, and the U.S. and British footprint in Uganda goes back, obviously, to the scramble for Africa the, in the British case. But like um, when, when Museveni comes to power in the 80s in uh, Uganda, that he comes to power with a lot of help from... Uh, again, U.S. favorites, uh, Paul Kagame and Fred Wigyama, who become the leaders of the Rwandan Patriotic Front. And these leaders then take uh, Ugandan equipment. Uh, they take the Rwandan soldiers that were part of the, uh, the Ugandan, the National uh, Front of Museveni. And they put that together and they invade Rwanda in 1990. And they invade Rwanda in 1990. Uh, and they do it kind of, it's, it, they claim that it's a democratic movement, but there was a democratic movement in Rwanda to, over, to get rid of the dictator at the time, uh, you know, Habyarimana. And, and they, the democratic movement in Rwanda wanted to do it in a way that was going to maintain whatever state, uh, you know, subsidies and things that, that obviously are gone now um, that, that they had. So, of course, the U.S. Uh, in you know the U.S. sponsors these this invasion and they occupy a part of Rwanda and it becomes you know like we said um, an ethnically uh, divisive thing because the RPF is led by one sort of group uh, the so-called Tutsis um, and and the north the northern part of Rwanda that they've invaded is mostly Hutu. So if they had invaded a part where there were more Tutsis, maybe they would have had a easier time in terms of like the, pop, the local population, but they happened to invade a part of Rwanda where, uh, it, where it was different, a different group. It was, it was Hutus. And so they displaced millions of them. You know, and this is not, again, like this is Romeo Dallaire and like anybody, you know, anybody can tell you, uh, including the most pro-US or pro-RPF people, that this is what happened. They displaced millions of people. There are millions of refugees um, that then go to the capital and they start talking about their terrible experiences, getting slaughtered by the RPF, um, which is a pattern of the RPF warfare in Uganda too. And they start agitating, um, you know, for to attack Tutsis everywhere, and that's the genocidal dynamic, right? Is like, there's this, you know, they're attacking us from the north, but there's Tutsis everywhere here in the south, and we have to attack them, and and um, 
and the Rwandans recruited, um, you know, there's a lot of just unfortunate dynamics to the nature of this war. The Rwandans did recruit Tutsis from all over uh, the region. They recruited Congolese Tutsis, who they treated as sub subpar to relative to the Ugandan uh, refugees. But they recruited lots of uh, so-called Banya Molenge uh, from Congo. They recruited, obviously, Tutsis from all over Rwanda and Burundi. So they did kind of have the cutting edge of their military force was uh, Tutsis from everywhere. They also, you know, if you read their military doctrine, they practiced this and they're proud of it. Again, proud of it, trained by the U.S. in these forms of warfare, but they develop this pattern of warfare, which is like infiltration warfare, because they, you know, they had these characteristics with, so they would infiltrate small groups into an area ahead of their battle lines. And then they would set off some big incident, usually an assassination or something. And then when they attacked from their front line, they would already have infiltrators all over the place um, that would quickly help that target collapse. So like, when they did, they did that in 1994, in, in April 1994, they, they made their big bid for the capital um, after three years of like negotiating and warfare and negotiating and warfare from the 1990s to, 19, from 1990 to 1994, where the UN um, led by Romeo Dallaire was completely biased in favor of the invaders and blockaded weapons from getting to the state to defend themselves. and made sure that the RPF could get all the weapons they needed. Um, and again, proudly, like when the French uh, were coming to help uh, the state, uh, what's his name, Dallaire said, I'll, I'll shoot their goddamn plane down or whatever. Um, so very pretty proudly sponsoring the RPF. Uh, invasion, which is not what you would think the UN would do. And this is all before the genocide, right? Like we write that, that the, rewrite the genocide back on everything that happened um, leading up to it. But um, the genocide happened uh, like the Holocaust, you know, Arno Meyer writes about the Holocaust. It's like, these are things that the Nazis did that when they were losing, right? The worst crimes happened when the Nazis were losing and the worst crimes of the Rwandan genocide happened when the Rwandan state had broken down and there were militias running around just massacring Tutsis everywhere, which again, like it's, there's something of that dynamic maybe happening in Ukraine right now, right? Like you're seeing really horrific things happening behind, you know, the lines where the, you know, Nazis are doing these terrible things uh, to Ukrainians as they're losing on the battlefield, right? So there is this, it is a part of the war dynamic. There's not, there, there's not like a genocide in Rwanda independent of the the occurrences of the war like the whole thing is a single event and the massacres by the rwandan patriotic front were part of that too the rpf gathered villagers together by the hundreds or by the thousands and massacred them and then the you know displaced people you know the people left who survived that would flee to the south and so this was also part of that whole dynamic um, where was I? So that's, so 1994, it was the whole infiltration system that, of warfare that uh, the RPF conducted 
was initiated by the assassination of the president of Rwanda, Javier Mana, and they assassinated the president of Burundi in the same uh, plane crash. He was on the same plane coming back from a negotiation, um, which uh, also that president of Burundi uh, had been replaced, had replaced the president of Burundi who had been assassinated by the army um, of Burundi prior to that, Melchior Ndadaye, assassinated brutally in his office. Um, and the Burundi army was a huge ally of the Rwandan Patriotic Front. So like, this is all, these are all part of that dynamic. Now, when France, France's role in, in this whole thing was they were upholding the, the Rwandan state and they were trying to get the Rwandan state uh, to, get reorganized that was prevented repeatedly by united nations uh via you know delaire and the united nations was working obviously for the americans and everybody knew that so that was um and then the front you know the the thing about operation turquoise which was like the french operation to evacuate um you know french nationals it was in originally uh, you know that's the same thing that the Belgians did in the 60s. The colonials always come and evacuate the white people. Like it's like a part of their pattern whenever there's a war. But they also did this uh, operation to try to, um, they were trying to, I guess, create a humanitarian corridor from the Rwandan Patriotic Front. And this has been criticized as like, you basically let the genocidaires escape. But it's like, what exactly did you think they were supposed to do? Were they supposed to, seal them in so that the so that the Rwandan Patriotic Front could have their way with them, which is eventually what happened, by the way, because the French did leave through negotiation and that the Rwandans invaded the Congo to get those genocidaires, meaning the millions of Congolese refugees. I mean, Congo, uh, Hutu refugees, uh, Rwandan refugees, mostly Hutu, not all, um, but mostly Hutu refugees. Um, so the idea was that the French were supposed to hand these people over to the RPF, who was massacring them, actively massacring uh, people as they took the country. Um, and, not, and not like, this is not like collateral damage either. This is not like the indiscriminate application of firepower that the RPF was doing. That's not really their doctrine. They were gathering people together and saying, everybody come together for humanitarian aid or for a parlay, and then they were slaughtering them all. Um, and this happened, there were huge massacres inside Rwanda, um, in Kibeho, uh, Biumba, there were a series of massacres during the invasion. And so the huge massacres that were committed by militias, you know, the so-called Interahamwe, um, checkpoints and, and organized massacres of Tutsis, those, uh, those, were happening just before the RPF took an area. And then when the R and as the RPF took areas, they then committed massacres um, as well. So it's like the number of people that died um, in these massacres is in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, more of them, most estimates are that more uh, of them were killed by militias you know, like probably four to one or something. Uh, when I reviewed the numbers, it's probably, you know, you know, four, you know, several hundred thousand um, 
were killed by militias with machetes at checkpoints and so on. And then a smaller number of hundreds of thousands were killed by the RPF in the invasion. And then um, because millions of refugees went into the Congo, which was then Zaire, uh, the RPF kind of said, we're going to repatriate those people forcibly. And, and because Mobutu was so despised, uh, reviled for being the US uh, you know, tool for those decades, everybody participated, including um, people that governments that had a degree of independence from the US like Zimbabwe and Angola, uh, they also invaded to overthrow Mobutu in 1996. And they installed Kabila. And then in 1998, when Rwanda didn't like how things were going with Kabila, Rwanda invaded uh, again. And when Rwanda invaded again, it was like a regime change uh, kind of operation to get rid of Kabila. But Angola and Zimbabwe weren't having it this time. And so this, the second war didn't end in a quick Rwandan victory. And the US had to intervene to save Rwandan military from, you know, the biggest force had been completely encircled by Zimbabwe and Angola forces. And the US basically called Zimbabwe and sort of begged them to let the Rwandans go, which they did. Um, and so that was how like the war dragged on. And, and now today even, Rwanda continues to occupy Eastern Congo um, and, and exercise a lot of control over the Congo, which has no, you know, doesn't have sovereignty meaningfully and continues to be, you know, the US uh, plays a big role in training the army and, and you know, coordinating these so-called anti-terrorist operations, which are basically just constant violations of the sovereignty of the Congo and, and encroachments into their territory. Well, that was that was a really good explanation of it. And from from what I've read on the subject, like I, I think also a lot of people get a certain narrative of what happened mm -hmm. uh, that, that does definitely neglect uh, the role on the place after the fact with mm -hmm. the the refugees who flee into uh, into the East Congo. Um, I'm curious about like Kabila's death. Um, I mean, I think it's like mm -hmm. kind of a, an interesting episode within everything that's happening is that then he's killed by one of his bodyguards um, during the second war. And like, I mean, making sense of making sense of the whole thing i guess would be like the note to conclude on um of like what what to make of this uh, the congo is like a very it, it's different when lumumba is around right like there's more of a figure who is clearly politically and ideologically in the right sense but even with someone like kabila it's not really clear that he's like a, a good guy in any in any sense of the word so now we're in a state even today in the congo it's very hard to see who is like yeah. And not to not to do the sides thing and say like the right <laughs> side, but it's like who's who's even a viable actor against the U.S. empire in the Congo today? No, you can't. I wouldn't. I don't see it that. I don't look at it that way. You're right. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the way I see it is, you know, there's a struggle for sovereignty, mm. and the struggle for sovereignty does continue. Um, 
And so that, and it's not, it's not going to end. And it's also not, they're not going to lose. Like they can't really lose. Congo's not going to be occupied forever. And Africa yeah. is going to rise again. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and it is, you know, it, it, it is. So I think that, you know, that one of the, one of my favorite things that uh, one of the uh, Congolese historians, George Nzongola Talaja. Mm-hmm. wrote um he said something like you know just very dismissively in his in his book on congo he said like the rwandan genocide couldn't have happened if congo was on its feet you know it just the congo would have just you know the congo would have just sat them down and been like cut it out you know stop the inv-. like and if the invasion had you know you didn't even need congo to be on its feet you just needed um you know the west to sort of say because there, you know, as usual, there was like, there was an accord. It's like the Minsk Accords now. It's reminding me a lot of that, right? Because it's like there were these accords in Ukraine that if they had been followed, it would have been fine. And like there were these accords. There was an Arusha Accord, which was ridiculously biased in favor of the RPF. Like the RPF was going to get half of the army uh, spots or like 50% of the officer class and some other absurd amount of the army and like all the important ministerial portfolios. And, and then there was going to be an election in like a number of years where they would have to compete. And that's where the RPF was like, yeah, we don't want that because they knew they wouldn't win. And so they were like, no, we could win the war. Why would we, why would we try to risk it all in an election? Um, but, you know, trying to apply that logic to the Congo now where Rwanda's so much smaller than the Congo and they think they can just on behalf of the US rule the whole Congo, like it didn't work, right? It didn't work. Um, and so it's not gonna work long-term. So where, you know, Kabila was murdered. <laughs> um, Kabila was probably killed by Rwanda, you know, Rwanda with help from the U.S. It, it wasn't the first time they tried to kill him, right? Like they, they, they're also, there's also a pattern of setting up like the, the way the U.S. did this, they, the RPF itself was like some kind of political front for the military operation to invade Rwanda in 1990. Um, then because they are, they, Kagame wasn't the president. It was this guy named Alexis Kanyarengwe. Um, so then when they invaded Congo, they created this political front. Uh, what was it called? Anyway, ADL, I think. ADL. AFDL, I think it was called. Um, and they, uh, they invaded and they were the political front. And then when they didn't, when they wanted to get rid of Kabila, they created another political front, the RCD, and then Uganda created their own RCD, and they created all these kind of political fronts for their interests. Um, But uh, Joseph Kabila won an election um, with a lot of support in Eastern Congo. Um, And then there's, there's just been like, there's, there's very limited things that the Congolese government has been able to do uh, with the power of us back to rwanda because it's not rwanda right it's like it's kind of funny it's like talking about ukraine again it's like yeah the the incredible power of Zelensky. you know (laughs) it's like that's not a thing um and it's not rwanda and it's not kagame it's the us 
Um, and so there's very limited maneuver uh, for a Congolese government trying to get their sovereignty back under these circumstances. Um, but but it's it's a it's a brutal and and really really nasty process for the people. But it's it's not stopped, <laughs> and it's not going to stop until. Congo is uh, sovereign and Congolese resources are for Congolese. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy now over uh, les contrats chinois, right? The Chinese uh, contracts and like Chinese business there. And there are lots of Congolese who go to China and do business in China. And, and you know, that's a, that's a, that's a big, that's going to make a bigger and bigger difference in Africa's future is the, uh, the option, the alternative uh, option, which, you know, since the 1880s, uh, has been denied to, to, to them, which is like the whole point as Lenin, you know, uh, talked about like monopolies and imperialism are go completely hand in hand. And there's no, uh, there's no separating that monopoly power. And so if the monopoly power is actually broken and the people from that, from Africa have, an option, it's a totally different situation. Well, I, I totally agree with you there. Um, and honestly, that that is the craziest part of, of like reading on the modern Congo is just how, uh, the, I mean, just kind of as you were alluding to, like first it's, it's really hard to keep track of all these different rebel mm -hmm. groups because there are a lot of them. But then I think that that speaks to like, the point to say that the Congo has really become as very um, disintegrated as a political entity. Like it's it's completely fractured into all these different warring groups and some have Ugandan loyalty or they're trying to overthrow Uganda. Some have Rwandan loyalty or they're trying to overthrow Rwanda or, you know, it's, so it's like totally competing interests in the Congo. But the one kind of uniting thing I think that you're pointing out is that like the amount of money to be made off off conflicts in the Congo is is incredibly large, and mm -hmm. to see like the U.S. kind of perpetuate this, um, we could talk a lot about like the role of Africom in the Congo as well, which is as you were saying, like doing these kind of yeah. training operations and everything. But I think your point overall stands, which is to say, like the money being made off this uh, will continue to be far more than any person in the Congo will ever see in their lifetime. And that's the really tragic part of the whole thing. Um, I think people are kind of familiar with like the idea of, of blood diamonds and everything, but they, they also think that it's possible to like have um, the term that people have, have come up with of like conflict-free minerals or whatever, of like no. <laughs> conflict-free resources, which is, which is just incredible to me because like none of it is conflict-free um, in the Congo. But I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So I'll just say thank you so much um, for this really, really good explanation of, of everything from the assassination of Lumumba to today and what's going on today and trying to make sense of it. So I really appreciate it. And I, I know that any like students watching who have had a certain narrative of the Congo taught to them, I think. And even like, even if you get into slightly higher levels and you're starting to learn more about it, you still get a misrepresentation of just how involved the U.S. is in all of this. It's like anything you really read is is really like the U.S. is just watching in horror. Oh, 
this is terrible of this or, horrible or, african horror yeah it's like it's always racist there's always like so yeah. much racism embedded in it yeah yeah and really i think like people are are slightly more familiar with uh the rwandan genocide because it you know has produced a a media kind of presence like yeah like i think i remember in high school like teachers putting on hotel rwanda for us uh which is which is really crazy to think about and then totally not having any of the context uh, i mean the guy the guy the don Cheadle guy is in yeah. the rwandan jail now yeah so, he was just arrested recently yeah i remember reading about well that. he's been more than a year he's been yeah but anyways, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, we'll upload this and then send it to you and uh, I'll stay in touch for sure. Cause I, I really love uh, your your podcast as well. I love listening to it, especially the Scramble for Africa episodes are great. So yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Take care. <laughs>